0: Romans 14, 1 through 23. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil." For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin.
1: Well, hey, good morning. Uh, my name's Nate. If I haven't met you yet, good to be with you this morning. Those joining us online, uh, again, thanks for joining us. Um, it, was, it wasn't too long ago, uh, about a month or so ago, I was at one of our kids' activities, and I was talking with another parent, and we began to talk about the pandemic and vaccines. And it was one of those conversations where I just met her, but within 10 minutes, she was telling me about how her one sister was not going to be coming to, va- to Thanksgiving because she was unvaccinated. And there was quite a division in their family. Things went from very surface to all of a sudden very deep. And at one point she made this statement, everyone has an opinion about this. And she was recognized that in herself and those in her family. And listen, this is not an isolated incident. Not only that issue, but many others, but I would say this over the last 18 to 24 months, there has been a deepening, multiplying division in almost every sphere we relate in. Our relationships, those maybe that we're a part of in church, maybe those are our friendships, those within our neighborhood, apartment complex. Let me ask you this morning how many of you have experienced a relationship, a family, friend, or neighbor that's fractured over the past 18 to 24 months? Or maybe not fractured, but it's distanced it. You're no longer as close. What's the fracturing been over? What's the division been over? You know, recently I was talking with a pastor who uh, is a friend, and he said the main issue he was having post-pandemic, well, I should say, in the midst of where we are in the pandemic, was his congregation returning because of the social, political issues being held that were so different. In other words, the congregation had seen over the last 18, 24 months, all the Facebook posts, all the Instagram posts, and they knew those people, and they didn't want to get back together again with those people who held those views. How about here? How about Redeemer City? How are we doing? You know, it's interesting, uh, you might, uh, if you're new, you might in this moment have kind of a starry-eyed vision of Redeemer City. This church is great, or whatever. Whatever. But, but let me suggest or submit to you that our hope is that you actually deepen in the life of this community and that you're going to actually meet some people who disagree with you on some, some different issues. It's just going to happen. It's only a matter of time. And the question is, what do you do? How do we move forward in a time like this, in the midst of polarizing division, do we kind of retreat into kind of tribal fracturing, into people that think the same way we do, which is usually a very small group, or maybe just by yourself, you know? Do we move forward and, and not talk about these things? What, what do we do? This section of Paul's letter to the book of Rome is so, excuse me, to the church at Rome is so helpful because it's about one thing. This chapter is about how do you get along with people who you disagree with about something you have a deep conviction about. Let me say it again. This chapter is about how you get along with people, particularly in the church, who you disagree with about something you have a deep conviction about. And it might seem petty or a bit petty in the moment here because the division in the church at Rome is about what you eat. Or about days you observed. There were some that were saying, it's okay to eat meat. And others were saying, it's not okay to eat meat. And it may sound strange, but if you understand the context, in that day, there were some at the Church of Rome of a Jewish background who had over centuries, in the Old Testament we see it, forging an identity as a people of God in which there were certain days to observe in which there are certain dietary laws that you followed. On the other side, in this church at Rome, were Gentiles who didn't have that history. And yet both of these groups had come together to believe that Jesus really was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And there they are as a community, and they're divided over that. They are fractured over that. And Paul addresses the deep divisions in the church at Rome, and for us today, he helps us to sort of, I would say, dig out the rubble of a polarized, divisive world, and he says this, it takes wise love, grounded and formed in the gospel, to build unity in the midst of a polarizing world. Let me say it again, it takes wise love that is formed and saturated with the gospel to build unity in the midst of a polarizing world. And Paul impacts this wise love addressing three things. He addresses their head, what they think. He addresses their heart, what they feel. And thirdly, he addresses their hands, how they relate to one another. So let me pray and we'll get in. Father, you know uh, the deep things that we feel deep conviction about and the differences that are perhaps right across the row from us. And pray over this time that you would take this text and this situation in this church and that you would apply the gospel to our hearts and lives, that we might lead lives that are unified and make much of you and we ask you for your help. Amen. Well, Paul begins by addressing their head, what they think. And Paul begins by taking the issues that's dividing them, and he identifies what kind of issue it is. Look at verse 1. He says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That word opinions, it comes from a Greek word, That theologians would just say, This is a disputable matter. In other words, a disputable matter is a belief or practice which God has not clearly forbidden or commanded. In short, Paul is saying this about the issue that's dividing them it's this this issue should not lead to division. Now, just to be clear, he is not saying that there's never a time to divide over an issue. If you look, for example, at Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, in Asia Minor, Paul says, if anyone comes to you teaching a gospel different from this one, you should call them a false teacher and not welcome them in the church. No, that's an issue you divide over. Or for example, the church at Corinth, there's an issue of open immorality that's being practiced, and he calls them to remove that person from fellowship. And the reason why you divide over those is because that actually cuts you off from a relationship with God. But Paul says here, this issue that's being divided over should not divide. And this is the principle, and this is so important for our day. Wisdom knows when unity is more important than uniformity. Wise love knows when unity is more important than uniformity. There's a guy by the name of Michael Bird, and he helps provide some helpful wisdom and kind of guardrails and thinking about how do you decide what's disputable and what's not. And he just he talks about three tiers. And the first tier is just these are matters that are absolutely essential for salvation: who Christ is, the way of salvation. That's tier one. There's tier two: matters that are important to the faith and the church. But are not essential for salvation. Things like inerrancy of Scripture, that that Scripture is God's Word, morality, gender, marriage—these are important. And and by the way, these first two tiers—they're almost always—they're explicit, they're clear in Scripture. And then there's tier three, which are matters of indifference, debatable things. These are these are wisdom areas where Scripture is not particularly clear. And so when Paul begins writing the church at Rome, he's saying, hey, check this out. This is like tier three. This is bucket three. This is a debatable issue. This is disputable. Well, how about today? Some of us actually might have some issues with what other people eat, right? But not for the reasons they're thinking of. But let me just list off a few here, both maybe in our current cultural moment, but maybe over the years that has divided uh, people in the church, should I read Harry Potter? Should I, should I participate in Halloween? Wait, that's kind of, that's today. Okay, all right. Um, relationship to government, social justice-related issues, politics, alcohol consumption. How about public school or private school? or homeschool, get those moms together. That usually goes well, right? (laughs) Vaccines, masks, no masks. Can I just tell you right now, all the things I just listed, those are disputable matters. See, wise love knows the difference. Wise love knows when unity is more important than uniformity. J.D. Greer, a pastor, he he's this wonderful quote. He says this Spiritual maturity is not just developing strong convictions, it is learning to show restraint in the weight you give those convictions. this is so good. Listen, all the issues I just mentioned, I'm not saying you can't hold a conviction about it, nor should you be wishy-washy, okay? In this passage, Paul actually says which side he's on. And by the way, he's right. He's Paul at this point. He's writing scripture. He's right, okay? Paul has an opinion here. He has a conviction. But listen, even he's not willing to divide over it. Because unity is more important than uniformity in this issue. So Paul begins by addressing the head. But he also continues to talk about the heart. Look at verse 3. Paul says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Paul begins to identify the attitudes that are present in these two groups. And both of them ultimately are dealing with pride. But it's pride that relates in different ways based on where you are in the division. Paul says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And here's what we see, is that those who are more liberal on an issue, and again, I'm not using that term politically, I'm using that term in terms of... A, in terms of this, that they're more open to new ideas. When you're on that side of an issue, here's how pride shows itself. You feel more mature, sophisticated, and advanced than those who are less open. And you look down, and you take those who are not as open, and you take them lightly. That's what it means to despise. It means you're not even worth my time. But on the other side, they're just as guilty because it says, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. These are people with convictions that are more restricted, conservative. Again, I'm not using that term politically. I'm just saying less adverse to change. And you know what that happens, what, what that looks like? They feel like they're the righteous remnant. We're the ones who are really committed. We're the ones holding out. They're the sellouts. Let me ask you, which one do you tend towards? Do you often feel more mature, advanced than those on the other side in a disputable manner? Or do you tend to feel like you're the only one left? You're the righteous remnant. And listen, it may change based on the issue, right? (laughs) Right? probably go on both sides. And Paul is saying, do not respond to those you disagree with like this. Do not take lightly those who are more conservative. Don't get on your high horse and think you're all that to those who don't adhere to your level of piety. Paul's addressing our heart. This is, this is one of the most hardest places to be at work, right? How do you change your heart? How do you, how do you change your attitude? Well, Paul offers a couple antidotes. Look at verse 4. He says this, "'Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand.'" Listen, in these matters, right, it could be so easy to crawl into the chair of judge and jury and convict those on the other side. And I want to be clear it's not that Christians are not called to make judgments. We are, at times, are called to identify sin as sin. But here, in this situation, it's off in two reasons. One is the issue itself is not a sin. But secondly, it's the attitude in which it's held. The language here suggests that the way in which the group is doing this toward the other is clearly one in which they are superior. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you need to orient yourself to what reality is. And then think about this for a moment. Jesus in Matthew 7 said, hey, when you're going to take the speck out of someone else's eye, deal with the plank in your own eye. In other words, it's a posture of humility, which is missing, which is why Paul says, "Why do you think you're passing? You're, who do you think you are for passing judgment? You are a servant, like them, of the one and true King." The next time you see that Facebook, Instagram post of that other Christian you know, remember that. Who are you? Who are we? But secondly, Paul adds another reason. Verses 10 to 12, he says this, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul reminds them and us that every one of us is going to give an account before God. And this is, for those who have faith in Christ, this is not an issue of salvation. That work is finished, but rather it's a judgment in light of how have you lived in light of that grace and that mercy? And we'll all be before that that chair. How might that change your heart the next time you see that post? What might, what might That do the next time you're in Citigroup and someone says that political stance? Who are you to judge? What if our hearts in those moments allowed God to be God? That He's the judge, that He's Lord? What if in those moments, instead of grabbing, as Lewis Mead puts it, God's status for our own self, we simply joined in the dance of life as a creature? So Paul addresses our head, how we think. Unity is more important than uniformity. He addresses our heart to humble us, to get us oriented to actually who is on the throne. And it's not us. But thirdly, Paul deals with our hands. In other words, how do we relate to those we disagree with on these matters? In verse 3, the very end of verse 3, Paul begins by showing us this. He says at the anniversary, he says, For God has welcomed him. Did you catch that? For God has welcomed him. The one you disagree with in a disputable matter. Again, this is not an issue of doctrine of Christ. This is not an issue of immorality, sleeping with your girlfriend. Like these are not, it's not that level. This is a disputable matter. Paul says, What what do you do? You welcome them as they've been welcomed by God. And listen, this is the uniqueness of the gospel, right? This is the gospel of grace, that God welcomes sinners, any and all, in light of their flawed views or positions or their character. Like, this is not religion 101. This is, you are accepted because of Christ, and that's it. In other words, if God has welcomed them, how can you not welcome them? This isn't, and this language here, it's not this kind of like generic welcome. You know, it's not a a veneer of plastic smiles, you know, with a subtle undertow of like, I can't believe they're here. No, no, no. This is your brother or sister in Christ of whom Christ has died for. How do you welcome that one? It means tangibly. You gather around good food. It means you share about your week, and it means you offer prayer for the other. That's how you welcome. But secondly, Paul's a realist here, and he knows this, that, that it takes time to change. Because wise love gives time to change. Look at verse 5. Paul says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Either one should be fully convinced in his own mind. When Paul says each one should be convinced in his own mind, Paul is referring to this understanding of the the conscience. It's that moral intuition acting as a guide to what is right or wrong of one's behavior. And Paul is saying this, no matter your side of the issue... Do what your conscience thinks is right. Don't disobey your conscience. And Paul actually goes on to show a filter of, well, how do you, how do you relate to what your conscience says? In verses 6 to 8, he says this, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So that whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. In other words, Paul is just saying for each of us in disputable matters, this is what we do. Can I do this before Christ? Is my conscience stricken? Can I do this with his eye upon me? Can I do this in his name, thanking him for it? And I said this earlier, but notice, like, for example, in verse 14, Paul will give his, his, his clear distinction of which side he's on. He goes, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Paul is saying this. He knows that Jesus in Mark 7 has purified all food. It's okay to eat these things. But in this area, he is allowing those who don't hold that perspective, whose consciences are stricken if they'd actually eat meat, to have space, to work it out. Because it's a disputable matter. Now, what's really fascinating here, this, is, this goes a little bit deeper for a moment, but verse 23 Paul says this, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is a really interesting piece here, and just hold on for a moment. Paul is saying this. He's saying this if you don't think it's okay to eat meat, and you do, that's actually sin. And that's weird, right? Because Paul just said it's not a sin to eat meat. But if you think it is, it is sin. So how is that possible? Well, let me put it this way. This has to do with the conscience. A while back, one of our kids um, got a consequence. It happens, well, you know, it happens, right? So they lost their um, their device for the weekend. And come Monday, one of them came forward, um, this person came forward, this kid came forward and they're like, Dad, I just want to just let you know, I, I just want to confess to you, I, I got my device out, and I knew it was wrong, and I looked at it, and I'm sorry. And I said, okay, all right, thank you for telling me. And then in a moment, I figured out that that had happened on Monday. But the, their losing the device was done as of Sunday. But here's what's interesting in that moment. So they actually weren't breaking what we had talked about. They didn't break the relationship but here's the point, because they thought, and they knew in that moment they thought that it was wrong, it was actually, because it was in relationship to me, it's what their conscience had said. And we forgave them, of course, right? That's what you do in that moment, but that's the issue of conscience, you don't mess with it. Let me ask you this. Paul is trusting in this moment that over time, those in this church that are divided over this issue will grow into maturity. They'll actually become more united in this issue, but Paul is giving patience for others to grow. Listen, how patient are we toward others in areas of disputable matters? How patient are you for them to grow? Think about this for a moment if someone shares some political stance or some other issue about vaccines or whatever it might be, I don't even know, but think about it. Like, do you want them to change next week? I mean, really. Like, how long has it taken to you to get where you are, right? And Paul's giving patience and time for them to change. But Paul also says this, That wise love puts other people's spiritual well-beings above their freedom. Listen, most of us when we think of freedom, we think of it in this way. What do I get to do? My rights. These are my rights. I'm free to do what I want to do. But Paul says in verse 13, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And what Paul is saying there is he's saying your actions actually affect others look at verse 15. Paul says this. He says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And in verse 19, Paul says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Um, when it says that, you, that they grieve their brother… It's saying when the Gentiles eat their food in front of someone who doesn't believe in you your food, it actually wrecks their conscience. And it might actually lead them to eating meat with you, which breaks their conscience. And Paul's saying this you need to think about how you love. Love is not doing whatever you please. Actually, love is thinking about what is going to benefit my brother or sister in Christ, what is going to help them grow and mature in their relationship with him. And lastly, wise love majors on what is most important. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Wise love doesn't begin with how can I exercise my freedom in the gospel. It begins with actions and conversations that will lead to peace with those around me. What will unite us? It leads to actions that will encourage them and help them grow in their relationship with God, not a matter of what I get to do. This whole section, this entire chapter, Paul has brought to the foreground the relationships that they have amongst them in the church. And he's calling them to a wise love. But I want to tell you something the foreground is that, but what's the background? All of it, all of it is the gospel. Listen for a moment. How has God treated you? Has God welcomed you based on the rightness of your opinion? Has He not welcomed you into His family like a lovesick father who sees his lost son coming home and runs out to meet him? That's how he welcomes. Puts the signet ring, meaning they have all the rights and privileges, and that's even before they've even changed their character. That's how God welcomes. Or where else do we see someone else putting other people's well being above their freedom? How about Jesus, right? How about on the cross? What is he doing? He's putting our greatest need before his freedom. He is laying down his life, is he not? For the well being of others. And see, don't you see what's happening here? When Paul calls him to a wise love, it is a wise love that is formed and forged in the gospel. This is what is orienting this entire. Passage, and here's what this means, and this is the gut check for me and for you. A sign of how well you and I understand the gospel is going to be lived out by how we love those we disagree with. How about that? Think about that. Do you want to know how well you understand the gospel? It's how well you relate to one another. How do you live it out here? And how do you live it out there? I don't know about you, but I need some help, right? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have not waited for us to come to you, but you have come after us. We thank you that this gospel is good news. that welcomes all. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live that out amidst different convictions, even here. Help us to love well those we disagree with and help us to live in a way that honors you, that is united. And we ask this all in your name. Amen. Well, appropriately responding to this text, we're going to enter into a time of remembering the Lord's Supper. And if you didn't grab um, one of these, you can grab it out there, feel free. Um, but so much of our division, honestly, in this time, it's, it's, it's not that the gospel isn't like in the conversation, it's just on the side table, right? Like it's off like on the appetizer table, when like the gospel's got to be at the center. Like how big is our gospel? And that's why Jesus, when he gathered his twelve before he was betrayed and killed and crucified, He got around his 12, and this is what he did. He he said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. He's saying, this is it. This is the centerpiece. This is the centerpiece of my community. This is what it means to be a part of this family. Let me tell you what, those 12, they were so different than one another. They were. Different socially, different politically, so different. But that was what held them together. So we don't take communion individually. Like we're not going to go into separate rooms. We do this together, right? With those around us. So this is not only his blood shed for you, it's his blood shed for the one next to you. Do you know that? That he welcomes them just as he welcomes you. Is it enough? It is, it is. So let's take the bread. And afterwards he took the cup and he handed each one of them. And they all drank. He said, this is my blood that's shed for you. And we all know it's not because they were perfect, right? They were all going to betray him or run from him. But he still laid it down for fools, for sinners. And that's what he does for us. No matter where we are, he welcomes us. So let's drink in remembrance of that.